0: Enjoy. My name is Zachary Smith, and I'm here with Leanne Reynolds, Associate Professor of History at Stanford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Today we're going to talk about her book, Maintaining Segregation: Children and Racial Instruction in the South, 1920 to 1955. The book was published by Louisiana State University Press in 2017. Leanne. Hello. Hi. All right. So I think the best place to start our conversation is at the absolute beginning. So what inspired you to write on this topic, this topic of how children learned about segregation?
1: When I was in graduate school at Vanderbilt, I took a couple of classes with sociologist Larry Griffin. And in those classes, we talked a lot about segregation. In particular, read a lot of narratives of people who talked about their experiences of growing up during segregation. And so particularly people like Lillian Smith and Ann Moody, uh, also Carl Rowan, uh, and many others. And one of the things that really kept coming up over and over again is this almost refrain where people talked about segregation having been questioned, uh, or about uh, how their parents were silent about segregation or wouldn't answer their questions about segregation. And I found that 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 was for both whites and African Americans in the South that they had this sort of common experience where their, their parents wouldn't talk to them about segregation. Um, and so memory studies are really uh, hot at the time. And so we kind of really got into reading these texts and, and that really inspired me to study segregation as an institution. Uh, one of the other books that was really important um, at the time for me was, um, this book by John Sell, uh, The Highest Stage of White Supremacy, uh, which looked at um, segregation in South Africa and the American South. And so I was really interested in that. And he really um, studied segregation as an institution. So I want to kind of follow that model uh, and really look at how the institution functioned. And I really thought that children were a way to really understand uh, how the system functioned.
0: Okay, so this seems like a topic that. You know would be fairly fairly heavily studied This seems like an obvious topic to go if you want to learn about systemic racism in the 20th century american history so who who else has written on this topic you know what have they said about it and what makes what makes maintaining segregation different
1: so it's funny you did ask that so as i was in graduate school i became aware that there were a number of other folks working on this and the one that most people would know about was jennifer ritterhouse Um, And then another uh, historian named uh, Christina DeRocher. And so uh, Growing Up Jim Crow is Jim Broderhouse's book and then Raising Racists is DeRocher's book. And so that was uh, not ideal um, to have those other studies uh, be coming out um, as I was working on mine, but they were actually really helpful because they helped me to refine my argument. Uh, and really understood how the way I approached it was in some way similar to them, but in in a lot of ways different from them. And the real contribution I I think I make and that differentiates um, what I study from the approach that they took really has to do with timing in a lot of ways or chronology and so uh, I both of them kind of look at an earlier period picking up in the late 19th century cutting off roughly um, in um, you know around the World War II era and so I really start in 1920 and then go up until about 1955 uh, and sort of take 1955 as my end date um, with the idea of you know, the Brown versus of Education decision the previous year, uh, the Emmett Hill lynching in 55, and then the, the beginning of the month, Montgomery bus boycott as these sort of series of incidents that really just blew open this question of what segregation's future would be. Uh, and so part of my argument is the idea that segregation is maintained through silence. That's no longer possible once this this sort of national conversation begins and so i think during those latter decades in the 20s lynching had begun to decline that sort of spectacle lynching especially uh so there was that you know less of that sort of visible um violence although it was still going on um behind the scenes uh, and so I really think by that point, the system had matured in a way that people no longer felt the need to necessarily explain exactly why people were supposed to follow it. Um, and so it became more of sort of lessons learned by rote, parents modeling behavior for their children, but also just shutting down the, the questions that their children had. Uh, for whites in particular, um, you know, some of them had an explicitly you know, racist motivation. They wanted to protect the system and protect white supremacy. Uh, they also feared social ostracism. Uh, but a lot of them, I think, were just modeling the behavior they had learned from their parents, sort um, of following what the system required of them. Uh, and they were also, um, you know, following the lessons that their parents had taught them. And so it became a system that, especially for the white population, they didn't necessarily think all that much about. Um, they followed it, uh, what it required of them. I think for African American parents, their calculations were different, right? They were looking at uh, the threats, the violence uh, that segregation posed to them, uh, to the economic well being of their families, and to their very lives and the lives of their children. And so they were making calculations for what they would teach their children on the basis of the need to protect them as their most vital interest. Uh, And so some parents did teach their children, and Black parents did teach their children to challenge. There are definitely uh, examples of that that you can find or they would model behavior where they would go in the door for whites and uh, sort of try to teach their children to do the same thing. But most of the examples that I found um, were not that. There were a variety of other strategies, um, either trying to isolate their children from contact with whites as long as they could, particularly if class allowed them to accomplish that, uh, or it was um, teaching their children how to navigate the system, right? To say, yes, this is unjust, but ultimately you're gonna have to live with the rules that are required. Um, and then other parents, uh, particularly some of the most economically vulnerable, um, a lot of times I'm famous with single mothers, you know, people who are sharecropping families, right, who were really, really the most economically vulnerable. Um, you see more in those families, you know, don't ask me about this, um, you know, slapping their children, just whatever they could do to keep them from talking about it. And so I think as the system matured, those kinds of, of means of sort of squelching discussion uh, about the system for the purposes of safety, Um, particularly there in the African-American community um, really meant that this culture of silence maintained institutions during those decades and I think that that's different from what came before when it was more intentional instruction as the system was being created and from what came after the mid-1950s when it was a more explicit defense of the system um, in the midst of you know this real threat coming from the federal government from the civil rights movement uh, those who were actively
0: working against it. So you talk about this culture of silence how do you research a culture of silence
1: certainly that's challenging but uh, there are there's a huge source base of people both white Southerners and african americans growing up in the south um, who wrote about you know coming of age in the segregated south uh, and so there are a number of narratives i've mentioned some of them um a great historian at, at university of georgia john Ensco, had this huge list of autobiographies and he very graciously sent it to me uh, pretty early on in my research project Uh, And so I worked, you know, kind of systematically through many, many of those. And so there's lots of narratives and a lot to draw on there. Um, There is a problem, uh, particularly with whites, um, that most of the people who wrote such narratives were not people who were um, supporters of segregation ultimately, right? They were people who had become critical of it. They were writing about how they became critical. There's a question about how, you know, how true a story you're getting from people who ultimately are critical of the system. But I always looked at it to say, you know, at the time that they are writing about, right, when they're children and they're growing up, uh, they're writing at a time when they really did believe in segregation and support segregation, right? They are segregationists during that time. And so they're trying to capture what it felt like and what it meant for them to grow up in the system and to believe in the system for the time that they did. And then to explain how one then comes to work their way out of a belief in the system. And so I think that they're incredibly valuable in that way. It allows you to access kind of the mind of a segregationist in a way that some of the people who really believed in the, the system long term um, have been less um, willing to share. And so I think they have value in that way. Uh, another big source base is oral history collections, particularly of African-American experiences in segregation. So, Duke University has the Behind the Veil uh, project. So, that was incredibly useful. Um, some oral history um, resources at uh, Mississippi State Archives and also at the Birmingham Civil Rights Institute here in town, uh, and many others as well. And so, there's a lot of really great resources along those lines. Also, traveled to many, many state archives looking at Board of Education records and minutes and, and um, some of those things trying to read between the lines and not so much, sometimes not always between the lines. Pretty explicit, uh, you know, about trying to keep textbooks going from black schools back to white schools, making sure the supplies only went one direction uh, so that white students didn't ever end up using textbooks that black students had used. Um, so there are lots of ways in which you could kind of find evidence of that. Uh, and then also, I uh, went to a lot of denominational records. Um, so, a whole chapter I have about um, learning about race in churches. I was very fortunate to receive. Um, research grants uh, from Southern Baptist Archives, um, and also archives from the Presbyterian Historical Society, um, as well as the United you know, Methodist Church. And so I was able to do extensive research in those archives, um, and uh, a lot of my focus in that chapter is on those archives. So really a mixture of archival and narrative sources to help to try to explore and find evidence of some of um, what's not there in those those
0: silences. Yeah, and I think, I think the kind of building what you did find, I think, cause when I think of education sources, I think of what was in schools when, what you find in schools when I, I was in school, you'll beat up you know, public school textbooks that you know covered the bindings covered in black tape just to make sure it stays together for another 10 years. Um, what was not out there in terms of the research, the sources that you expected to find?
1: I think the two sets of sources I wish I had found more of um, one would be literature, Sunday school literature put out by prominently African-American religious institutions. So Sunday school literature is a little frustrating at times because a lot of times they use uniform lessons where everybody around the country used the same lesson and then you would print it up and use different pictures. That was one of the sources I used, as kind of visual sources of a black Madonna and child um, or you know black uh, baby dolls and things like that, pictures in some of the literature, where the lesson was basically the same, right, based on scripture, but then um, the visuals that were used, the stories that helped to supplement it, you would find evidence of sort of um, African American denominations teaching racial pride through their Sunday school literature. Um, But overall, I didn't find as much of that as I would have liked to have. Um, So that's something I wish that, that, that I had found more of. And the other thing, I think, as I mentioned earlier, is sort of more kind of narrative evidence or oral history evidence of people who did ultimately, um, and in the long term, support segregation, to kind of get more of their philosophy and thinking um, behind their support for segregation. Uh, and so, so those would be two bodies of sources that um, that I wish I had found more of.
0: Okay. So, so considering all that you have found, and you know some of the obstacles you've overcome finding that material, what do you see some potential areas of future study on this topic? Is there more to find out?
1: I mean, I think there is. Uh, so one area, and again, I mentioned these three religious archives where I was able to find a lot of information. And I did at some points make distinctions between the approach of Methodist Episcopal church south, as it was known at the time, um, and then Southern Baptist Convention, um, and then Presbyterian denomination in the south. So I did find some distinctions there and, and made some of those. But I do think that there's more to explore there in terms of how different religious institutions went about teaching, Uh, or representing uh, issues of race uh, in their literature especially Um, and so you know catholic institutions jewish institutions different um, protestant denominations i think that there's probably more to do there Um, if one wanted to devote um, oneself very closely to a study of that i think that there's probably analysis to be offered there
0: is there anything you did not discuss in the book that you wish you had that you could have
1: yeah, I think so. I mean, one always has, um, you know, one more source you could have looked at or something else you might have changed interpretation-wise. And, and unfortunately, you usually don't have the chance to, to go back and do those things over again. But um, one thing that has come uh, out, just as I've given talks about the book, and this goes back to the issue of chronology. So as I said, I pick up the story basically in 1920 and pick that date because i do think it is a sort of declining especially kind of a spectacle uh, violence still present but less of it um in the aftermath of a kind of spike after world war one um and then 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 um kind of take the story up through 1955 and kind of treat that as a unit although i do look at variations at various points um over that those decades uh, but one thing people have asked me about particularly is literature that was produced in the mid-1950s and afterwards um, by uh, organizations that we would consider massive resistance organizations. So they were white supremacist organizations. They were trying to um, protect segregation, which they now saw as being under attack in the midst of the civil rights movement, starting there, particularly this uptick of activity in the mid-1950s. And so there was a lot of literature that was produced that was very, Um, you know, explicitly defensive segregation, sometimes with a religious um, argument to defend segregation. Uh, And I really think that what was going on in that literature was an attempt to defend a system that was seen as being under attack. And I think that that's a different act, uh, different posture than what I was looking at in my study, which is sort of how do you maintain the system day to day um, when it's not under as direct public threat all the time, as it became uh, in the mid-1950s and beyond. And so I think that looking back that I you know wish I had done more to kind of acknowledge and discuss that literature, um, which a lot of people are, are familiar with and is definitely out there, um, but I do think it is a difference, a different kind of response to segregation. It's a defensive posture. Um, whereas this sort of, you know, culture of silence, not talking about segregation, not answering questions about it, um, you know, not talking about African-American contributions in textbooks um, and some of the ways in which they sort of um, reckoning with notions of racial equality in a religious text, right? It's just not, uh, it's just not something that's really being discussed, particularly um, with white children. And so I think that um, I wish I had done more to kind of explain that chronology and to kind of acknowledge some of those other examples of literature that are out there, which take place outside the boundaries of the time period, which I'm discussing.
0: So let's look to the future.
1: So I'm just finishing up um, a documentary film project, actually, which I've been working on for some time. And uh, it relates to Birmingham, race relations in Birmingham. Uh, and this 1961. Uh, it's a television episode of a program called CBS Reports, which is a precursor to 60 Minutes. Um, and so this um, program came to Birmingham and they interviewed a number of Uh, White leaders in the city, but also students um, at my institution, other institutions, Miles College, which is uh, one of the uh, predominantly African-American universities here in Birmingham Um, and Birmingham Southern, right? They went around to all the different colleges, including Howard College, which is what Sanford was at the time. And um, and then also, you know, they went to Miles College and interviewed African-American students. They interviewed African-American ministers and leaders. Um, And so I've just kind of finished wrapping up um, the the process of producing that. And so as I was working on that, I had the opportunity to interview a number of of people who had uh, been uh, at the institutions at the time or some of the people who were interviewed in this original show who are still living And I, of course, being me and being interested in this topic, uh, you know, asked them about what was it like growing up in segregation and what, you know, what were your experiences? And I found a lot of the same things coming out in these interviews that we did as I did, as I read in the narratives and the oral histories that I studied for the book. So, you know, whites who would say, you know, segregation was just the way things were. And African Americans who would say, you know, this is the way we thought it was supposed to be, right? Nobody was talking about challenging it. We didn't, you know, there weren't, we didn't know means or organizations to challenge at the time. This is just how we grew up, right? This is just what life was. And so I saw those kinds of refrains and, and at one point, the editors were like, oh, we, th- we think you should think, take that section of the film out, um, because everybody kind of knows about segregation, these experiences. And I was like, no, no, that's the most interesting part, right? Because it was, you know, to me, because I had, I had been doing this study. Um, and so I've just kind of continued to pursue these questions and had opportunities, other opportunities to ask about them in the course of doing that, that film. And the other project I'm working on um, is uh, a second book project, which is about three women which I mentioned in Maintained segregation. So Lillian Smith, um, you know white novelist, um, Virginia Durr, uh, who's an activist and observer and helper, uh, and then Anne Braden, uh, who was, who was an activist and, and definitely a supporter of younger of younger activists. And so these were all three white women whose stories I became familiar with through working on the book. And in their narratives, they talk about how they went from being people who were you know, raised in the segregated system, who didn't question at the beginning, and then how they became critical of it over the course of their lifetimes. And so their narratives then are critiques of segregation, of class relations in the South, of, of gender to some extent in the South. And so I'm really exploring their lives and looking at sort. of you know, how they grew up, how they became critical, um, the nature of their critiques, and then what the consequences were for them as white women um, who really turned their back on this system of segregation that was supposed to protect them, um, became critical of it and the kinds of consequences that they suffered as a result of their experiences. And so I really um, became interested in them through this, this first project and I've been able to carry that over and then to this sort of uh, study of them engagement of how their lives um, can be read uh, together.
0: What relevance do your arguments in maintaining segregation have for our current national conversation about racial justice?
1: Uh, The thing I really see that's relevant in the book is, so the the second chapter, which is about how African-American children learn about race in their homes, um, I call it the African-American Dilemma. And so that's a kind of riff on the American Dilemma, which is this famous book that came out in the 1940s um, by, uh, written by Gunnar Myrdal and a cast of thousands with a big long book and, you know, studies the problem of race in America at that time. And so I call it the African-American dilemma. And so what that is, you know, going off of the sort of narratives of um, African-American parents, they talk about this dilemma they face, right? Which is how do we prepare our children to live with the racial situation in the United States? At that time, right, it's segregation and parents made a variety of choices. Um, Some of them told their children not to challenge. Um, Some of them encouraged them to challenge. Um, We have just recently um, marked the passing of John Lewis um, and everybody has talked about um, how he he talked about getting in good trouble. Uh, The larger context of that is that when he talked about his parents and the advice that they gave him in growing up in segregated Alabama in the 1940s, um, he gave this interview when um, uh, the day before President Obama was inaugurated the first time. And he said that his parents always told him not to get in the way, not to get in trouble. And so that kind of refrain of good trouble was his kind of answer back to say um, that he resolved that he was going to get in the way he was going to get in trouble. Um, But he said about his own parents, he's like, there's no shame in the way that they approach teaching about segregation. Um, You know, he said they made the best of life within their limits. They tried to do what they could with what they had. Uh, and he said, "You know, who would they have fought against? How? What kind of tools would they have? Right?" Um, and so, through the lessons and the values they had instilled with him, he eventually then went on to um, to challenge and obviously be this incredible activist. Uh, but that was sort of refrain of getting in trouble and getting in the way. And good trouble really was an answer back to to sort of what he had learned about how to approach segregation. And so, um, I think that sort of um, through line of african-american parents having to figure out what are we going to tell our children right about this system wherein whether it's segregation or whether it's the sort of challenges today with with the police and racial justice, um we are sending our children out to the world where people are going to hate them and possibly respond to them violently because of how they look right in their appearance uh, and so for them to try to figure out and think through that and so you've heard all these stories that there have been all of these um, killings in the last few years Um, of people black parents having to have the talk right with their children about what to do if you're stopped by the police and how to um, interact in the larger community um, in the midst of of, of the larger racial injustice in the community and i think that there's this um, sort of message that that's a that's a problem they've, they've always had to um they've always had to confront
0: in this incredibly important conversation we're having as a country I'm sure there are a lot of people listening who have been considering these last, you know, few months. Like, how can I, how can I talk to my students in the classroom about this? What's, 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 what's an effective means of getting at this?
1: I mean, I do think it gives that um, historical example to say this is a challenge that that black parents have always had, and white parents too, to a less extent. Some of them, sometimes they haven't always accepted the challenge, um, but it is. Um, it's an interesting South that we live in, right, and, and nation, and people have to face questions from their children, as children do, right? Why are things like this? What is, you know, why are, why are the rules applied to one group, not the same as the other group? You know, why do I have to, in the era of segregation, right, why can't I use the water fountain? Um, you have these kinds of questions then and now about race, someone at one point described uh the the book as an experiential history of segregation I thought, oh that's really good i th- should have thought about that but i do think it's that right it is this sort of day-to-day the interaction between parent and child the interaction between teacher and student the sort of day-to-day texture and questions and um and sort of how people learned with and grappled with the system um for a variety of considerations, uh, whether it's protecting the system, protecting from social ostracism, protecting the lives of their children, uh, right? Or of their students. Adults made decisions or unthinkingly, really, and encourage people um, that the system was was something that that was that had to be lived with, right? That it was just the way things are. Um, Ralph Abernathy, who's a um, great leader, supporter of King in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, um, talked about segregation as having the feel of something natural right that it was like the hang of an oak tree or the the slant of a hillside it was part of the landscape and i think what my book does is really um, allows you to see how people came to think that way and not everybody did but enough people did that it did help to maintain the system even as people began to work against it um, in the decades, um, you know, before, very after, you know, War Two, and then heading on to until the, until the more um, kind of classical civil rights movement we think about starting in the 50s, um, that the way that people learned about race in their homes, schools, and churches um, really blunted some of the impact of some of that activism and so I think the value in the book of the classroom is it's that sort of day-to-day what did it feel like to live in this strange system of segregation to grow up to ask questions uh, and then ultimately um, in some cases right come to a critique of it for other people um, a lifelong acceptance really of it until the civil rights movement came in and and forced people uh, really to make a decision about whether uh, forced whites whether to make to whether to support the system or, or let it go
0: well i've been speaking with leanne reynolds uh, associate professor of history at Stanford university her book is maintaining segregation children and racial instruction in the south 1920 to 1955 leanne thanks for talking with me
1: well thanks for doing it this. was wonderful
0: let's do it again for the next book and thank you all for listening